I read that Veggie Morphs book a lot. <laughs> I don't know if there's more than one. Was there more than one Veggie Morph? Veggie Morphs, the fungus among us. <laughs> no, you're entertained by that at least. <laughs> Love it. How is that the joke that gets you? The most like bad <laughs> joke ever. I wasn't like I didn't realize I had a little tagline. <laughs> Can't believe I didn't remember that. How do you remember nothing about these books you presumably read a dozen times in your bathroom? I don't know. <laughs> Wild. All right, we're going to move on because I don't want to make this a Veggie Morse podcast. <laughs> I don't know. It might be a winner. Hello, and welcome to Spook Retorts. Uh, 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 the third <laughs> annual, Sam. Third annual. I'm Sam. <laughs> I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast where we share spooky things with our friends that are very weird, and they don't know what we're talking about. Yay, Spook Retorts. I love Spook Retorts. <laughs> I know. We're a, we're a little late getting started, but we're going to come back spookier than ever. And Danielle, I have the spookiest thing in the world for you today. Is it Hyperion? It's Hyperion. It's a <laughs> Spooky no. thing of you trying to remember what we did in Hyperion. <laughs> Don't worry, next week will be uh, the usual spooks. <laughs> no, I think this is going to be spookiest thing ever for people who are afraid of science fiction and space operas. And sh the Shrike? Is the Shrike in this book? Oh, Danielle, not yet. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, actually, no, that's a lie. So it, the Shrike is, of course, in this book. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends, the Authorized Novelizations Podcast. We recently did an episode with them and it came out last week. Yay. It's about the Starlight Barking, the Donnie Smith sequel to 101 Dalmatians. So if you want to revisit that insanity with a different group of people, but still us, just with other people <laughs> at that time, <laughs> please check them out. Yeah, if you want to brush up with our recap of it and then listen to our breakdown of it with them, that'd be a good double feature, I think. I think that'd be an excellent double feature. In fact, <laughs> listen to ours first, then theirs, and then ours again to see how it <laughs> might have changed your perspective. And maybe theirs again, too, just to make it full circle. <laughs> also, we wanted to give a shout out to one of our favorite podcasters and podcasts with Dustin. He has two really great podcasts, and the one we're shouting out today is Dustin Can Read and Watch. He expanded his pool of things he can do. It's worth <laughs> checking out. It is. So listen to the little promo and go check it out. Are you an adult that wants to read but doesn't really have the time or the attention span? Are you behind in your TV viewing and just want to know what's out there? Well, look no further than Dustin Can Read and Watch. I'm Dustin, and we've got modern and retro young adult and middle grade books. Dustin Can Read. We've got television and movies. Dustin Can Watch. Recent comedies, supernatural, musicals, and even the MCU. Show only meant for adults. Parents suggested to listen to the program before subjecting their children to idiocy. This program is not always safe for work. For more info on this podcast, hit me up on Instagram at Dustin Can Read or on Twitter at Dustin underscore Holden. Don't miss out. It's all going down on Dustin Can Read and Watch. And we're back. All right, Danielle, it's time to get this spook train going. Choo-choo. choo With the spookiest thing spook, ever, Danielle. Spook. <laughs> yes, thank you. Okay. Great. Perfect. Love it. A plus. A plus Foley work there. I am here for spook retorts. I know. 
So let me terrify you by asking you, Danielle, can you, just to get us started, recap in brief the entirety of Hyperion <laughs> for, for our listeners? Can you recap the space opera for us? <laughs> yeah, just recap the first book. Just, you know, a few sentences here and there about each story, just so we can get caught up. Because it's been a while. We had a bit of a break. We all had to recover from the ugh, the complexity and insanity that was Hyperion. But before we dive back in, I want to get everyone caught back up. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, I can't even remember all the books, to be honest, but let's There's see. There's only one book, Danielle. Just a no, lot of stories. No, all the books within the book. It's very meta. <laughs> books within books within books. There are a bunch of of travelers, <laughs> people. Oh. <laughs> What's the word I'm Oof. looking for, Sam? <laughs> the word you're looking for is pilgrims. Pilgrims! Are doing and a pilgrimage. the number you're looking for is seven. Seven, yeah. seven pilgrims to Hyperion because... Which is... What is Hyperion? Uh, Hyperion's a planet... <laughs> that uh, has a potentially evil, or maybe not evil, creature on it called the Shrike, who is yeah, yeah. sharp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is a good description of the Shrike. In one word, describe the Shrike. Sharp. And Spot seems, on. Seems to be guarding or something the time tombs on this planet, which, uh, I don't know, move forward, move back in time. It's it's unclear what the time tombs do. It's pretty clear they move backward in time from the future. Sure, that. And... So they are going there because I don't, chaos. There's the time tombs open. What's going? I forget what's going on. Why everybody's evacuating Hyperion? So the time tombs are opening, which means that they are coming into sync with our time, and whatever their contents are from the future will now be revealed. They appear empty mm-hmm. up until this point, and also there's an invasion happening. Oh, of the ousters, right? Ousters. That's right. They're coming to maybe attack or invade Hyperion, but they might be good guys, not bad guys. Who knows? Well, I mean. What's really good, Danielle? (laughs) We haven't figured that out yet in this book. There's a lot of gray in this book, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So they're heading over there to help with the evacuation and kind of figure out what's going on. Well, they're going. They're going over to like figure out what's going on and like hopefully resolve some of Hyperion's issues. And so this book contains uh, six of the seven characters' stories because one disappears in a bloody mess before. Remember his name? No, not even a little bit. Perfect. We'll get there, I'm sure. Oh, perfect. So, uh, don't Let me know. tell you the first story. The first one is the pre- the priest or whatever, yeah. right? Leonard okay. Hoyt. I don't know how these stories really even matter, but there, <laughs> Leonard Hoyt <laughs> is the priest, and he like goes to another planet. It's the motivations for all the characters. Sure. Well, no, no. Well, Leonard's, Leonard's story is not about himself. He's telling the story of... Father Paul Duray. That's right. Father Paul Duray, who shows up on this planet and ends up Hyperion, with Hyperion, yes. Yes. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't remember. That was so He goes to Hyperion, <laughs> he finds the Bakura, the, the, the lost tribe there. Yeah, and it's just a bunch of people who keep, like, repopulating themselves. They keep Resurrecting. Re- re- they, yeah, they, like, keep regenerating themselves, essentially, by wearing these weird little cross crosses on them. This book's very religious in a very weird way. It um, has a lot to say about religion. Again, I am not trying to state any particular opinion on religion that's coming from us. I'm just trying to tell you what this book is saying, and all I can say is I don't know what it's saying. <laughs> so they have these weird little embedded crosses into their skin, like a, I don't know, like a coral type They call it, yeah, thing. a coral parasite, or yeah. yeah, they call them parasites. And so as long as that exists, the person can keep regenerating in their semi-original like it form. It regrows their body, but they exactly. lose their humanity. But um, he ends up getting like taken over by one and dies or something. 
And then, then he tries to die. Right, he tries to die. And then what's his face? The main character guy from Hoyt. Like, yep. Hoyt. Yeah, he ends up finding him and then takes on the cross, the little takes coral cross. Takes on his cruciform and his the own. Cruciform. So now at some point he may regenerate both those people. Yes. So he's got two for one. Um right. And is in pain constantly, right? Yeah, because the further you get from this little valley where the cruciforms are found, the more pain they inflict on you to try to drive you back. Mm-hmm. And they're, he's drug addicted on to something. Super, you know what he's addicted to? Super amazing morphine or something. So close, Danielle. It's ultra morphine. <laughs> See, that's really close. That was, that you were very guess. close. Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay, that was the first story. And then all the right, second we story. we got to pick up the next one, Danielle. We've been that long on all of them. Okay, the second story. Is that the poet? Uh, you you I, don't know, do you? I don't remember which order of them are in, actually, I'll be honest. <laughs> okay, well, there's a poet, and uh, he goes to Hyperion at some point. And, oh, he's like, he's rich, he's poor, he's rich, he's poor, he's writing a bunch of books. He, um, like, he's you know poet. what they know? He's Very trying good to, summary. Very good he's, summary. He's trying to write Hyperion cantos while he's on Hyperion, and he gets all of his influence from when the Shrike comes into a city and starts destroying and killing everybody. He's like, oh, this gives me power, I will write my great cantos. Oh, yeah, that's the end of the story. Two important things to note about that. It's a very good summary. I just want to bring up two details because they will be relevant. Is one, he believes his cantos, his Hyperion poem, is somehow extremely important to the universe. Yeah, and it's tied and into also, the Shrike. The, the his friend who he basically sacrificed to the Shrike to save his cantos oh, right. is Sad King Billy. Poor Sad King Billy. Sad King Billy. Okay. All right. That was Next, very good. Thanks. Next story. Oh, no, you forgot the one in the middle, actually. You forgot Kassad's story. That came before uh, Martin's. Oh, the Kassad was like the soldier guy. Yeah. Um, A soldier guy who was doing... Star Trek things in the holodecks. <laughs> he was fighting, learning how to fight in the fake holodecks that are not holodecks, according yep, to Sam. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and he ends up meeting a girl a la Jordia LaForge, and Oof, he yeah. they have lots of sex. Yep. Pretty much Unlike like Jordia LaForge. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't know who this person is, but he just keeps meeting them and kind of like half in love with them. And then uh, ending spoiler. The girl is actually spoiler. What are you talking? <laughs> the girl is actually a Shrike Junior. Kind of. Yeah. They end up, he ends up on Hyperion like everyone does, and he meets her in Persia for the first time. And while well, they have sex, well, they murder a bunch of the ousters there. And at one point, she turns into kind of like the Shrike, or is a Shrike. It's all very weird while they're having sex, and it's not at all pleasant. <laughs> yeah. So we don't we don't quite know what this person is, but very Shrike like. Yep. And then there's that, and then there was one. Is that the sad uh, there one? Was Sol, the sad Sol one. Next? Weintraubs. What was that one? About his daughter. The sad one. Right. That's what I said. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. I'm giving you his name. <laughs> okay. Well, Saul has a daughter who ages perfectly normally until she hits her early 20s and then ends up, she's doing some studies in the time tomb on Hyperion. Something goes awry. The time tomb send her basically like reverse aging. She's yeah. reverse Benjamin buttoning. Only uh, one caveat from that is she's not just going backwards like her age. She's losing her memory. memory. Yeah. yeah. So she loses her memory with every day that passes like the memory of the day before, essentially. So she's younger and younger, even though she's the same age, same like physical age. 
And at some point, oh, then she ends up becoming a baby at some point. Yeah, basically it's just her aging backwards and them trying desperately to stop it and not succeeding. And then his wife right. dies and they go back to Hyperion to try to yeah, maybe Saul cure her. Baby. Right, that's what I was going to say. Jeez, Sam, why do you ask me to do summaries if you then fill in the rest of the summary? So I, you sounded like you were very lost on that. You I was, and I was going to say he takes the baby back to Hyperion, but no, I didn't get to say that, did I? <laughs> uh, okay, I'll let you do the next one all on your own. No, no, I want to give you any input. What was the next one? <laughs> no input, Danielle. <laughs> We're going to be here a while. Okay, just to uh, – I also want to oh, give more the detail. Woman. This. It was the de- detective. Braun Lamia. Well, just want to make one point about Saul's, though, quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saul's story is he was demanded to sacrifice his daughter, oh, Rachel, right. to the Shrike in a very Isaac and Abraham kind of way. And he refused, which is why she Via was dreams. cursed, at least according to the dreams he was having. So. Right, 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 right. And then the next one is like this weird thriller. Uh, it's, a, it's a cyberpunk noir. Yeah, cyberpunk noir, as Sam said originally. And it's I about, love it. It's a great term. It's about the lady that I can't remember. Bron Lamia? That's what Bron we said. Bron Lamia, yep. Yeah, because it was what's her what's his face's girlfriend in real life, sort of. Um <laughs> that was clear. The poet. I, I just blinked, Danielle. I mean I don't know what you were trying to say. <laughs> the poet that everything is based on for Hyperion. Oh, yeah. Bron Lamia actually comes from his life. Anyway, uh, Keats is a thing in this book, too. I, we did not mention Keats yet, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the one. This is the one with Keats. All right, just skip to the end of this one. We don't need to care about the whole mystery. Oh, yeah, there's there's basically like this android that needs to find out how he was murdered. He's still alive, obviously. But a he was cybrid. murdered briefly. <laughs> Cyborg. <laughs> cybrid. Briefly. Let's be clear, Cybrid. So yeah, Cybrid, who had lost his memories. Uh, And at the end... They go into the big neural net thing. Sure. They, they, they go to the data core and he downloads his consciousness into... Her. Her, yeah. Into well, a, sh- a Shron loop inside her body. not a thing in that yeah, story. That he Oof. implanted into her while she was like asleep or passed out or something. And she's like pregnant with the cyborg's baby. Yeah, so she's like got double duty. Yeah. Oh, that was a rough one. <laughs> yeah, it was. All right. I think there's only like, what, one or two more? I can't remember. We're skipping Hetmastin, the true voice of the tree. Ooh. He's the one we're skipping because he, he uh, died, is one, or disappeared, supposedly. Well, disappeared in a bloody mess. Right, right, right. Whether fake or real, we don't know. What's the next one? Uh, Isn't that the consoles? Oh, yeah, the boring one. <laughs> <laughs> so mad about that. All right, we're going to skip that one entirely. I think it's just about him. It's about his grandfather going back and forth on a ship to this planet and having sex with a woman there. Yeah, ages differently than he does because he's traveling in through space and she's not. Yeah, exactly. So he's getting all this time debt from near light speed travel or light speed travel and she's aging normally. So he stays relatively young. She gets old. And then they all hate the hegemony because it takes over their planet. Mm -hmm. And then the console betrays the hegemony to the ousters and causes the time tombs to open. Yeah. So good job. Yeah. And was there another one? I think that's all. Did we do six? It, it feels it felt interminable. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Danielle. Like what you did in this ten minutes was more than I did in in six episodes of Hyperion. <laughs> Months worth of Hyperion. You don't actually need to listen to those. You can just listen to that summary I gave you. I'm sure the perfect. It totally made sense. Everything. <laughs> That was mostly for me, Danielle, just to know how, how much you actually remembered. Um, I thought that I was surprisingly and decent. I, no, I was going to say, Danielle, I am impressed. <laughs> Even if we forgot a story, eh, it's probably fine. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back into it, Danielle, with the 1990 novel, The Fall of Hyperion. Yay. <laughs> 
You're so excited. I am. This is going to be great. What a way to it's start awesome, off Danielle. Spook Retort with the spooky sci-fi. I have to tell you, Danielle, it's spooky how much setup and background there is in this opening seven <laughs> chapters. No! <laughs> why, God, why? <laughs> <laughs> All right, it opens with the line, On the day the Armada went off to war, the last day of life as we knew it, I was invited to a party. Oh, good. <laughs> the new narrator identifies himself as Joseph Severn. If you don't remember more who that people? is. Why do I have? Why? The no, Danielle, why? you know who Joseph Severn is because he is the doctor friend of Keats who was there when he died. No, that's not. No. <laughs> yes. Joseph Severn was the doctor friend of Keats who was there in Italy when Keats died and took care of him. Hard and also pass. was a painter. Hard I mean, pass. you can pass all you want. We're here. This is what's happening. <laughs> Let's see something else, like bring back a Dracula movie or something. (laughs) (laughs) Danielle, you're going to do this. This is why this is you facing your haunted house. Like you like Dracula stuff. It's not scary to you. This is scary to you. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. He's arriving at a party at the government house on Taliseti Center. As he enters the grounds, a guard informs him that CEO Gladstone, remember her? Yeah. Yeah, wants to speak with him later that evening. He wanders around the party a bit, observing the opulence, and then mentions that the River Tethys, the only web-wide river, flows through the government house. And it flows through more than 200 worlds using permanent forecaster portals. So it's like a river that you can sail down across all these different worlds, which is pretty cool. But of course, all the riverfront property is housed by the wealthiest people in the web because, you know, that's how these things work. Yes, that's how everything works. (laughs) I've already lost you. (laughs) So he then goes to the buffet table to fill up on an array of food and then finds a table to sit at with a very striking woman who starts a conversation with him. Is it one of our characters from the other book? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, Are they even in this? Danielle, we will get to that. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I bother learning any of these characters if they're not even in it yet? No, that's the next book where everyone's different. Okay. So this woman, he observes, appears to be maybe younger than him, although he he knows she's in her her late 50s. She appears to be younger than he is at 26 because of all the Paulson treatments she's had and other cosmetic surgeries. Ooh, she fancy. I know, exactly. So he introduces himself as Severin, an artist, and she's all, oh, I remember you. Although he knows she's lying and just accessing her comm log to get info on him. (laughs) I want that skill. That'd be awesome. Right? Could you remember, like, <laughs> I forgot this guy's name. Let me just tap into the con. Oh, okay, great. George, got it. That's like my daily existence at work. Me just wishing I remembered people. <laughs> and also very creepy. I don't care. I like it. All right. So she introduces herself as Diana Philomel, and Severn seems to know about her sordid past, like how she poisoned her half-brother when she was nine, and how she married a senator, which is how she's here now. Is that, like, proven that she poisoned her half-brother oh, when she was he nine? He just says that like it's a fact. Like, she's been, she, like, used to work as a prostitute on Heaven's Gate and like poisoned her brother, half brother when she was nine and all those other terrible things. And that's how she clawed her way to the top or something. Are there no repercussions for people who do illegal things? I I do not know the answer to any of these questions. (laughs) Apparently it's just politics in the web. (laughs) Jeez. So Severin is asking her if he thinks this war was necessary, and and he's being of the war of the Alphys of Hyperion. And she's like, yes, I'm all for this war. And then her husband comes over, who is a large man, and Severin compares himself to him thinking, my memory tells me that I once wrote a verse ridiculing myself as Mr. John Keats, five feet high, and thus how short he is compared to average men these days. Mm -hmm. Severin then asks the senator why the war is necessary, and he's all, they messed with us, and now we gotta show them who's boss, and blah blah blah, jingo. Wisdom. Weren't they uh, kind of like 
pushed into messing with them. Yeah. So even though, as Severin thinks to himself, the hegemony was really the ones who instigated all of this conflict. It was like, <laughs> they're the ones who go to the ousters and doing this, who, who got them to attack Brezia and to attack Hyperia and all these other things. So it's really their fault. Yes, it is. Well, that's how politics work. So no, here we not are. Not at all. <laughs> Diana then asks Severin to draw her and uses a light pen to do so, and he thinks he does a pretty good job considering he had, quote, the RNA medication and lessons that had prepared me for the persona. The real Joseph Severin could do better. So they're at a party. Yep. And this person's just like, draw me. Yep. <laughs> okay, cool. He's like, this is like one of those annoying people. He's like, oh, you're an artist? Draw me. Oh, you're a musician? You're a singer? Sing something for me. You know, like one of those people. <laughs> That yes, everyone I've, hates. I've met those people. Yeah, I bet you have. They suck. <laughs> don't make people be like your dancing monkeys. You yeah, know, let them exist. <laughs> Suddenly, the sky lights up as the Armada flies overhead out in space, showing the long, glowing fusion trails of their engines as they head for the military forecaster portal to head to Hyperion. Everyone else cheers, but Severn does not. So everybody's pro-war, except for Yeah, like this is a, a party for the send-off for the start of... It's a start of war party, Danielle, basically. It's like, <laughs> as, hey... As one does. <laughs> yeah, we're sending the fleet off. We're sending the fleet off to go to war. You know, our brave boys and girls heading off to fight the ousters. But the fleet's not there with them. It's not like they're giving them a send-off. It is. It's there up in space above them, and they're cheering but for the it. But the fleet's at, not at the party. They're not enjoying no, the, not, like, no, champagne not, at no. the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, good job, everybody. We're going to celebrate gonna be here drinking the while you're fighting and dying. Good luck. You know, it's very <laughs> modern politics and war. Rich people, man. Yeah, right? The worst. <laughs> After the, all the hullabaloo, the party starts to wind down, and a guard comes to Severn saying, CEO Gladstone will see you now. As Severn enters her office, he gives a long description of Mina, which I will spare you because I am kind. I appreciate that. So Severn, just to clarify, and maybe yeah. you explained this and I was... Nope, out I've early not explained on. it. <laughs> okay, that's good. So Severin, you said, is the doctor that was with Keats, correct? Yeah, he was Severin. The real Severin, the historical figure of Severin, is the doctor friend of Keats who was an artist mm -hmm. and who was there when he died. In Perfect. Italy. So this is obviously some kind of future version of him. This is something different, absolutely. Yes, and okay. what it is, is alluded to, this book drops so many hints in the first couple of pages, like, what this is? Oh, it's not a real set. Something it's obvious what it is. We'll get to it, I promise. It's, Isn't it just the same thing as what Keats Jr. was in the other book? More than you would realize, Danielle. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Say. All right. Sorry, I just want to make sure I didn't miss something while I, while you were droning on about whatever you're droning on about. Droning on. You're really trying to turn our <laughs> listeners off this episode, aren't you? Just like, everything's like, kidding. hey, everyone, don't listen to this episode. <laughs> you're the worst hype man. <laughs> this is awesome. Sam's doing such a good job, y'all. Uh -huh, yeah. so I can feel the sarcasm through my monitor. Oh, I gotta go clean out my headphones. The sarcasm gunked them all up. Give me a second. <laughs> spook retorts. Spook retorts. All right. That was that better? Do you feel no, more enthused? No, I just feel well, worse I, I don't now. know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best, Sam. Let's look how much I paid attention to the first book. I was able to regurgitate everything in 10 seconds or less. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty impressive. All right. So the only thing he, I'll say that he talks about with Mina is that she has large, sad eyes and how she's the strong leader of this end of their age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in her office are a dozen other people. Glasgow introduces Severin to the others, and as she does so, Severin touches the data sphere to identify everyone. Their cabinet members, aides, senators, and a projection of a technocore counselor known as Albedo. Okay. Gladstone indicates she's invited Severin here to give an artist perspective on the war, which what? causes some what? consternation <laughs> among all the people there. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> 
I I feel for them. <laughs> yeah, right. She's like, oh, this is totally normal in Aura's perspective. <laughs> I mean, maybe wars would be more uh, better. More better is not a term, but you know what I mean. <laughs> less horrid. <laughs> yeah, less horrifying if we did have some artist perspectives on them. Can't argue with that. They certainly can't get – well, I, I don't want to say that. They probably could get more horrifying, but they, they certainly could stand to be a lot less horrifying. Agreed. So she asks Severin if he has an opinion on their plan to rescue Hyperion from the Ousters, and Severin says simply, it's stupid. The war is? <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole plan, the whole war with Hyperion is like, it's stupid. It and everyone's like, grumble, 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 what are you talking about? And so he elaborates that the hegemony hasn't had a real war since its formation. Mm-hmm. So they're really risking everything by assuming they know how to fight one. Why did they start the war again? Do we know the answer to that? Uh, not entirely. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm just making sure I hadn't missed something from the first one. So he's like, you've never had to fight a war before. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? We had to do the Gun and Heights Rebellion. And they're like, well, that's a rebellion. That's a civil war. And he was a force-trained person. So he was fighting with the same tactics that you all know, and he was fighting within the, the world web. He never strayed too far from the world web in his fight. And now Hyperion is more than three years away from the web, and you're fighting the ousters who have been out in space for centuries doing who knows what. Like, you don't know what you're getting into, basically. Right. And also, FYI, Hyperion is super weird because they have the strike, and we don't know how that's going to affect things. So really, this is all just a very bad idea. <laughs> You never know. Maybe the strike's on their side. Honestly, Danielle, we have no idea. <laughs> the strike's a mystery. There's some pushback from the various generals and admirals on, like, who is this guy? Gladstone says he's been commissioned to a series of drawings of her for historical posterity and thus has the highest level of clearance because oh, me- that's how that works. <laughs> The official painter of Mina gets highest clearance. <laughs> the T-level clearance. I remember it said in the book. I remember. But we like, need yeah. you to get like a full sense of Mina Gladstone to be able to paint her. <laughs> I have no idea why these people buy that. Like, obviously, she has ulterior motives for having Severin here. But these people are like, okay, sure. The court painter needs to have top secret clearance. <laughs> Makes sense, Mina. You're in charge. No problem. <laughs> I mean, she could have just said because I said so. And it would have been a lot easier. Nah, they don't want to buy that. <laughs> So the meeting ends, and Severin is left alone with Mina and her top aide, Leigh Hunt. When alone, Gladstone says to Severin in regards to him thinking the defense of Hyperion is stupid that, if you have any hope of being reunited with your counterpart, it would seem to be in your interest for us to carry out the Hyperion campaign. What? Severin does not respond. It would be in his best interest? So Yeah. Yeah, so basically, if if he wants to be reunited with his counterpart, it would be in his interest if they were to carry out the Hyperion campaign. Who's the counterpart? Danielle, we will get to that almost immediately. (laughs) Okay, good. When Severin says nothing, Hunt asks if he knows why people are leery of cybrids. And Severin says, yes, it's the Frankenstein complex, fear of anything in human form that's not completely human. It's the same reason androids were outlawed. So I guess it wasn't because android slavery is considered bad. They just thought, yeah, that's too creepy for us to have android slaves. We're going to outlaw them. So the androids are outlawed? Androids are outlawed. That's not cybrids. Remember androids, the blue-skinned people who were on the Benares boat? Right. Who were the slaves? Who were the slaves? They were outlawed, but not because of the slavery, but because they were too creepy. So they've been outlawed even since they were slaves. No, I mean they were slaves, and they then they outlawed them at some point, and then the ones on Hyperion are not in the web, so they're not part of the laws of the web. Okay, that was a long way to go for something that doesn't I'm sorry. matter. I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I like the androids; they're interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad they don't come back for a while. <laughs> Mina then reveals that he's here because he has information she needs. Because, as Severin puts it, I dream. 
The contents of the dreams appear to correspond to the events occurring around the person carrying the implant of the previous Keats persona, okay. which, if it's not quite alive, is still aware. So what's his, what's her face? Braun. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this guy dreams what's happening to the Keats persona that she's carrying. Why? Danielle. Boy, that's a question. Was he involved in a relationship with Keats at some point other than being Dr. Friend? <laughs> Dr. Like, are they, are they, like, one? <laughs> oh, all right. I'm just going to come out and say it. I think, I think he makes it pretty clear at some point that he is another Keats persona pretending to be Joseph Severin. So there's just, like, Keats abounding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is all the explanation I think we get, is that because he's another Keats persona, he dreams the actions, the life of the other Keats persona. Why are there so many Keats? There are two, Danielle, which again, it's, it's not a, it's a it's lot for Keats. It's more than needs to exist. <laughs> Clearly, this book and the techno core disagree with you. Oh, there's so many Keats. Why is Keats like, I nothing against Keats. I like Keats. Why... Why? Why is this so Because this whole book is basically inspired by the Keatsyterion poem. I know, I know, but oh. and because Dan Simmons has a real big, you know, Thing he loves Keats. Keats. <laughs> yeah, he loves Keats so much. Which again, okay. totally fine. But he's going to put as much Keats as he can to his books. Like that's Keats fine. Everywhere. You know what? Because of Dan Simmons, I have done more research on Keats than I've ever done in my entire life. So <laughs> there you go. Good, Thank good you, Dan for Simmons, Mr. Simmons, <laughs> teaching us about Keats. <laughs> Anyway, Severin can only receive information from the dreams that happens in real time, and he can't send any information back, because what's he going to do, shout through his dreams to them? I don't know. That's weird. Do the other Keats have dreams about this Keats? He's, he speculates that maybe, but he has no way of establishing whether that's true or not. Does he know who is the other Keats persona right now? I mean, he knows that's in Bron Lamia. How did he find that out? Because he dreams... The other Keats, he has so he dreamt about Bron. Okay, got it. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the last dream he had was just as all the pilgrims reached the time tombs. So that that's was like the end, the end of the, of book, the last right? book. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> so basically, he spends a moment recounting the last book for Mina as like his dreams. Like, okay, here's how they got to the time tombs. I bet it wasn't yada, as yada, good yada. as my recount. Oh, absolutely not. It was much less entertaining. <laughs> More coherent, but less entertaining. <laughs> Who needs coherency? So Mina asks him what the statuses of the pilgrims are, the last he dreamed. And the only thing that really of interest that comes out from this is that Mina knows Hoyt carries the two resurrection parasites. So like, she knows everything, everything that's going on, even the things that were like all the pilgrims supposedly keeping secret. Like, she knows all of it. So somebody's been tattling or somebody's bugged or something? Or like, you know, so... Basically, everyone's assumption about why they were picked, like, she picked them deliberately, knowing all, like, that the council is going to betray them, that the, you know, they have the resurrection parasites. Like, she is doing this for a reason. Right. Well, I assumed that. She's more on top of it than others may have assumed, is merely what I'm getting at. Got it. Severin also says that the largely drunk Martin is convinced that his unfinished poem predicted and determines the course of events, literally everywhere in the universe. I mean, I'm kind of rooting for the guy, Martin, that it's <laughs> right. like true, but it'd be pretty funny if it wasn't. <laughs> like he's, very, he, he's been agonizing for literally <laughs> centuries over this poem that he believes is like somehow dictating the events of the universe. And if it matters nothing, that's hilarious. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Gladstone tells Severin he's going to be staying with her for the next few days, observing and telling her about his dreams. And then Hunt leads him to his room. And as he does so, he tells Severin, make no mistake, she knows who you are and whom you represent. To which Severin quips, 
That's good, because at this point, I'm quite sure I do not know. And honestly, why would anyone assume anyone in this book knows anything? Because no one knows anything in this book. Nobody knows anything. Why Why would she even know so much to begin with? Some of this stuff's like private information. Well, she knows some of the stuff from the consul, who was her spy right. amongst the, the pilgrims. She probably has spies out of the things working in the techno core and, and around the web. I'm sure they have an extensive intelligence network. She's up to something. She is very much up to something. So, we cut to Hyperion. Six adults and an infant are huddled around a small campfire. There are some tents pitched nearby. Everyone is dressed in their best. The console in diplomatic finery, cassade in battle armor, etc. The sky still occasionally sparkles with the flash of space combat. Are they having a party? They're having a little party. So Lamia asks the console, hey, where's the Shrike? Why didn't we find him? And the console's all, I don't know. Why should I know where the Shrike is? <laughs> Have they tried just yelling his name? <laughs> Here, Shrikey, 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 Shrikey. <laughs> Just yeah, I saying. got some Shrikey <laughs> snacks for you. Ooh, Shrikey snacks. <laughs> it's possible. I haven't bothered to try. We haven't heard the Shrike speak yet. He might sound like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> I have to assume he does. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm somebody. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's all an accident. Maybe he's just trying to give hugs. He's <laughs> magooing <laughs> his way around trying to hug people and murdering them. <laughs> oh no, not another one. <laughs> uh, come on, Daniel, do a Scooby-Doo voice. No, I don't have a good Scooby-Doo voice. It's all you. <laughs> and I do. <laughs> <laughs> but Saul insists the Shrike will be there eventually. He can feel it. <laughs> Sure he can. What can't? What's his face? The poet? Like write him into existence? Uh, yeah, or even just like feel him coming. <laughs> He's like all um, attached to him. Martin's like going through withdrawal and not very pleasant at the moment, <laughs> so I mostly ignored him. <laughs> and by the way, this is all told through Severin as he dreams this, and then he remembers previously that they had spent the the day exploring the time tombs, but the time tombs were empty, no Shrike. They just looked like they would if they were tourists visiting. And just to give a rundown of all the tombs, Danielle, I expect you to remember this list. The time tombs are the Sphinx, mm-hmm. the Jade Tomb, the Obelisk, the Crystal Monolith, the three cave tombs in the cliff walls, and the Shrike Palace. Why is it called the Shrike Palace? Is that where the Shrike Because it looks lives? very spiky, <laughs> like <Okay>. the Shrike. <laughs> Love it. Perfect. I mean, there are very long descriptions of all of these buildings. I'm not sure it's relevant, so I just sort of saved us some time. I appreciate that. Severin also realized that the group had connected all of their comm logs and implants together in a kind of like local network of data sharing so they all sense each other and so they can all monitor each other. Yeah. This is very convenient because it also lets Severin, who otherwise is restricted to the perspective of the Keats persona inside of Braun, it allows him to expand his consciousness to the others through the network. A hundred percent. Dan Simmons was like, wait, I need him to be able to know (laughs) other stuff. (laughs) I'm not saying it wasn't, but hey, you know what? It works, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a writer thing for sure. <laughs> uh, it totally is. So Bron is feeling uneasy. Like there's some clue she's missing to this whole thing. And quote, she has always despised mysteries. It was one of the reasons she became a private investigator. Which, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> as soon as you said despises mysteries, I'm like, Huh? <laughs> and that's all the explanation for why hating mysteries means I want to be an investigator. I'm going to get rid of these mysteries once and for all. <laughs> I'm going to solve all the mysteries and eliminate mystery from the world. Take that. Constantly be surrounded by mystery, but I am going to solve it. I want to fight my battle here. This is my Sophian task to eliminate all <laughs> mysteries while I suffer through them. 
<laughs> wow, good for her. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We just get that one sentence that makes no sense and we just doesn't explain anything at all about it. <laughs> this book just throws out insane things like they're totally normal. I love it. Oh, all right. <laughs> So they discuss what to do, and the consul says he'll only call his ship in the event of a real emergency, so they're not, like, trying to leave yet. And that while he can transmit through the ship's fat line using his comm lock connected to it, he can't <laughs> receive any squirt. response. Yeah, the fat line squirts. But he can't <laughs> receive any responses, and I don't know why there are so many one-way communication systems in this universe. Like, I know why, from a writing perspective, he wants to make sure they can't talk to each other. It's the same reason there are no cell phones in horror movies. But, like, come on, Dan Simmons. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't really make any sense because there's very rare one-way communication things in real life. Yeah, like, why can't he get a squirt received from his transmitter receiver and, like, just have it sent to his comm log back and forth? Like, if his comm log's already connected, I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'm missing something. Either way, I'm calling shenanigans. That's fair. This seems fair to me, at least. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. I appreciate You're having you welcome. in my corner. <laughs> you and me versus all the people who are angrily tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> That's okay. Feel free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll take it. Any engagement is good engagement. So Saul wonders if Het Mastine is still out there, since they didn't find him yet. And Saints is like, he could be anywhere. Maybe he even has gotten into the labyrinth through the entrance in the Jade Tomb. Maybe he just went ahead without us for reasons. <laughs> reasons that may never become clear. <laughs> I would love if he just disappeared and the books never came back to it, which is like, that's <laughs> weird. <laughs> It'd be kind of fun, like, something's in life, just go unanswered. Some weird sorry. red herring. <laughs> yeah. There are mysteries in the universe that you don't get to know the answers to. I'm sorry, Braun. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what this book would do, though. There are mysteries in the universe that you don't get answers to in this book. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so good. Uh, I wish it, like, ended. I mean, I mean, when it ended with them singing off to the wizard song, mm -hmm. that was great. Yeah, the thing. <laughs> a choice that someone made. And uh, if it just ended the entire series there, it would have been amazing. <laughs> Oh, all right, all right, all right. Anyway, they turn in and go to bed, and so the Severin persona then dreams bronze dreams while she's dreaming them until she awakes suddenly due to some sound or movement. So it's unclear right now if Bron knows about this other Keats persona. She almost certainly does not. Okay. So there's a massive sandstorm tearing through the camp. Uh -oh. And she realized that Father Hoyt, whom she'd be sharing a tent with, has vanished. Uh-oh, not another one. Pretty soon there's not going to be any left. She goes outside and says the tombs are once again crackling with light and energy. So you know what that means, Danielle? The Shrike is in the house? DJ Shrike in the house! The best part of the first book. <laughs> uh, I miss DJ Shrike. I'm glad he's back. Too. It's not a party without DJ Shrike. Right, unless he's dropping beats and impaling fools on his <laughs> giant tree, it's not a party. <laughs> nice monkey noise. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> it was a squeaky noise for the spikes. Uh, uh, okay, yeah. Well, let My the, monkey noise is completely different, Sam. Jeez. Can you demonstrate so I can know the difference? Okay, that's pretty good. I got to give credit. That's pretty good. <laughs> totally different noises. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. I stand corrected, Danielle. Are there any other animals you'd like to share with us? Uh, no. Well, well if, if they come up, if the strike decides to maybe bring a kitten or something, I'm on board. <laughs> oh, you have a kitten noise? Yeah, a cat noise. Oh, you're not going to share that. All right, well. No, only if the strike brings a kitten to this mess. <laughs> well. Funnily enough, Danielle, the next sentence is, Then the Shrike appears with a basket of kittens from Ron Lamia. Oh, what a coincidence. 
Nope, not doing it. It's a lie. <laughs> no, it's not going to be trapped. <laughs> <laughs> I know better. Uh, we both a shot. <laughs> It'd be nice if the, if the truck did show up, just pass out kids like, sorry about all the murder guys. Here's some kittens. <laughs> Didn't mean it. My bad. It's having a bad week. <laughs> <laughs> Mia Copa, let me drop some beats and give out kittens for a party. <laughs> Good party. <laughs> Great party. <laughs> DJ Shrek and kittens. <laughs> That's like Hootie and the Blowfish or something. <laughs> Oh, gosh. All right. So <laughs> as he's standing out in the storm, Lamia sees the brief silhouette of a man outlined against the Sphinx. It's clearly Hoyt, but loses sight of it as Kassad puts a hand on her shoulder. Lamia asks if she should wake the others, and Kassad shakes his head and gestures towards the Sphinx. And Bran agrees to go after Hoyt as Kassad stays behind to guard the camp. She sets off, pauses at the glow and enters the jade tomb, but some supernatural notion tells her that this isn't Hoyt's destination, so she moves on. <laughs> book is just full of that yeah i know right People just like, no, I, yeah it's gonna be full of it doesn't feel right let me move on <laughs> hate it thanks uh, so she moves on seeing a brief figure outline now against the jade tomb and i do love how a book that those goes this hard into science fiction like explaining you know the hawking drives and the forecasters is like yeah but then everyone else said magic premonitions that tells them what to do whenever it needs to be done <laughs> that's because simmons couldn't figure out a reason <laughs> I, I mean i kind of admire the fact that he's like, now if I can't think of a reason, that's a good dude anyway. I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> like, he knows what he wants to get done. He's going to get it done one way or another. There's a lot of dream premonition stuff in this, too, so. Oh, my gosh. So much. Maybe that's, like, the idea, man, that like we all share consciousness or mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, man. All right. All one. <laughs> one with the universe and the strike. One with the strike, man. All those spikes, man. Each spike represents one of us. Strike's just a metaphor for, for humanity. It very well might be. <laughs> All right, so we cut to Severn in a military briefing being conducted by some low-rank officer. He's reporting on the battles with the ousters over Hyperion, mostly small skirmishes with scouting parties. They estimate of the 4,000 ships that they think are in the swarm, uh, in the cluster, 700 of them at most are combat-capable ships. And so while the current evacuation force around Hyperion for the hegemony is only around 60 ships, many of those are massive capital ships, so they're feeling pretty confident they can handle the ousters, even before the reinforcements, which they just sent off, arrive. I'm kind of rooting for the ousters, I'm going to be honest. Oh, I'm so rooting for the ousters. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> also, also, they just completed the Farcaster construction there, so now they can reinforce more easily. Excellent. For them. <laughs> so happy about that, Danielle. So in the last raid, they lost only 2,300 people. Only? Yeah. Not including the Yggdrasil. Remember the tree ship? Oh, the tree ship. Yeah. That's so sad. Remember, yeah, the Yggdrasil. But they're not counting the Yggdrasil because they concluded it was not destroyed by the ousters, but by sabotage. <gasps> From the inside. No. What, the inside of the tree ship? Well, yes, obviously. But Was there somebody <laughs> inside of the tree ship? They were all the uh, the clones. One of the clones did it? The crew clones. The people who ran the ship with clones and Ooh, the Templars. Creepy. Well, remember, in the last book, they concluded, at least the console concluded, that Het Massey knew the ship was going to be destroyed and was prepared for it and severed his connection, his psychic link to it. So this was some kind of plan that het scene was part of i super didn't remember that but okay yeah, i know that's why i brought it back up you're welcome <laughs> i believe you <laughs> so they only lost 2300 people only and then they move on to talking about the evacuation plans but an admiral's all nah, there was no evacuation actually it was all a feint to draw on the ousters 
What? Yeah. But no, no evacuation of Hyperion? None. They just wanted to pretend like they were evacuating Hyperion to get the Ousters to, like, attack or get involved. So they know that the Shrike is, like, serial killing. Yes. And they're just like, and the Ousters are going to attack. And they're yes. just like, it's cool. Let's leave everybody on planet. Yes. They're terrible. I hope the Ousters win. I hope the Shrike <laughs> and the Ousters win. I hope they're, com- like, together and they just wipe them out. <laughs> Yeah, no, these people are not good. And Mina is, like I said about the three million people who are on Hyperion, that they're leaving in danger. But she's assured by her generals and admirals that they will be protected from the Ousters. With what? With what? With their, the, fle- the fleet. The fleet's going to protect them. Like, they can easily blow up the Ousters. They're not going to, you know, threaten them. But there's still a Shrike running amok. Uh, they're, they're ignoring the Shrike. Don't worry about the Shrike. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get on to that. I'm I'm so mad. Politics are dumb. (laughs) I know. People are terrible. And and so besides, they say, they can't accommodate 3 million refugees in the web. And also, they don't want to take anyone off planet for, quote unquote, security reasons, i.e. risks the Shrike getting loose. No. So they're like, if we try to take people off planet, maybe the Shrike will get loose and then enter the world web and then we're really screwed. Why did they even start the war above Hyperion? Oh, Danielle. That is the big question of this book. Like, let's just sacrifice potentially these three million people for funsies. Well, not for funsies. They have, it's, it's to fight the Technocore, mostly. Sure. <laughs> but it's still giving up an entire planet, like, just on the off chance that it doesn't work. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're, well, they're Ugh. risking more of the planet. They're risking potentially the entire hegemony. Stupid. Stupid. Well, Mina may have very good reason for this, which we'll get into, even though her generals are doing terrible things and are morons who don't know what's going on. Like, Mina's the only one who knows, like, her, what her plan is, and all these morons are, like, overconfident buffoons. Would it help if Mina shared her plan? I don't think so, because I think that would instantly get her executed or okay. something. All right. Um, let the plot play out. <laughs> I don't remember her plan entirely, but something's going on. So they wrap up. And Hunt tells Severn that he's meeting with Gladstone later that afternoon, but is free to go about his business until then. So Severn heads to the Grand Concourse, which is another place, like the River Tethys, where many planets' markets are connected through large forecasters. So 200 worlds have all their market districts, like several blocks of their planets connected. And you can forecast for free between all these places. Okay. So Severin finds a bar and just starts drinking hard. And then sometime later, he realizes that he's not alone. Diana Philomel is there sitting next to him. Oh, yeah, that lady. That lady. She came back. I gave her a name. She came back. (laughs) That's true. You don't bother naming people, I guess, if they're not going to come back. I can't remember all their names. I can't expect you to. (laughs) I appreciate that. And she's all, hey, big guy, why don't you come back to my place so you can draw all of me? And Severin, completely drunk, is like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. (laughs) Baby Keats, don't do it. (laughs) Uh, Baby Keats 2, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) I need to come up with their names because all we have right now are Keats Jr. and Baby Keats. But when Bron Lamia gives birth, it's going to be Baby Keats. So we have to come up with a different name. Oh, (laughs) Danielle, well, I'll leave that to you. You've done such a bang up job so far. (laughs) Yes. So creative. So cut to Kassad, following Braun from a distance. He lied to her about saying back to guard. Instead, he's using her as bait to draw out the Shrike. Uh, okay. Kassad figures he's probably fine leaving the others unguarded anyway, since it's not like he can stop the Shrike. There's nothing he can do with the Shrike. He's like, I can't stop him. So there's really no point. So he just wants to draw out the Shrike for well, fun? He wants to find the Shrike because he's more interested in actually finding Monita, or Moneta, mm-hmm. his Shrike 
lady girlfriend shrike. lady uh-huh. because he figures she will be wherever the shrike is. Man shrike and lady shrike that we don't really know the is shrike does it does it use he him pronouns for the shrike when they or it or them? Or? Daniel, it has no pronouns. It is just the shrike, the lord of pain, <laughs> okay. is always it's referred to as the shrike. <laughs> it, 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 it's pronouns for probably something like sharp or stabby. <laughs> I was just wondering if it referred to a sex in the actual story. I don't think they like, ever referred to any other Because we know that than... Moneta or Monita or whatever is, yeah. seems <laughs> like at least presents feminine. Neither of us can decide her name. <laughs> <laughs> no. Monita slash Moneta, she is always – she is female, but the Shrike is always just referred to as the Shrike. Got it. Yeah, which I love. <laughs> 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 or DJ Shrike if you're feeling fancy. <laughs> side job. Side hustle. Everybody needs a side hustle. I mean, gosh, it's such a it's a hard economy on Hyperion, and <laughs> you know tourism is dried up at the time tombs. No one comes by anymore to see his shows. He mostly just plays for like the lizards and stuff that exist in the desert. <laughs> Poor DJ Shrek, and he like sent out his mixtape to people, but no one like wants to play it because they're afraid of him. So he, like passes out the subway, and he's like, "Hey, take my take my mixtape." I was like, "Oh, the Shrek," and they run away. And he feels very sad. Yeah, very sad. <laughs> that was a long way to go for <laughs> DJ Shrek being sad in the subway. <laughs> Sorry. I just had an idea, and I had to what write your it. Idea? I'm not telling you. <laughs> tell my, tell me, Danielle. No, nope, I'm you not going to tell I you. I have an idea. I can. I'm not going to tell you my idea, because this is not movies. We're like, all nope. right, everyone, I have a play, and then it cuts to black. <laughs> not telling you. It was not related to the podcast. I just had to write it down. What are you doing? Is this for <laughs> an episode? You. You'll is this find for a Halloween someday. costume? I'm not going to tell you. Danielle, this is horrifying. I'm going <laughs> to let everyone who's listening hear this and see how terrible you are. <laughs> And then when Sam figures out what it is that I was talking about, if he even remembers this moment in time, then we'll share it with everybody. I'll definitely forget. But still, <laughs> you're a terrible person for teasing. For the two minutes you're going to remember this conversation. Yes. <laughs> awful. Just awful person. Absolutely terrible. So anyway, with the enhanced vision of his battle helmet, Kassad can see Hoyt entering the Jade Tomb with Brawn not far behind. We cut to Brawn, who is struggling against the storm and lightning to reach the Jade t- Tomb which is glowing a bilious green as she enters. Is she just checking it out because it's glowing and she doesn't know where what's his face No, nah, she's fun following her gut to, as to where Hoyt is gone. Oh, that's right. Hoyt Magic. I forgot. And seeing his, like, silhouette in the distance. Right. So now we cut to Hoyt screaming obscenities at the darkness, lost in his immense pain from the cruciform parasite. He wants release from the pain, from the burden of carrying Paul DeRay's soul in the second cruciform, from the curse of immortality from his own cruciform. But Hoyt knows that the Bakura, who did this to him, were only vehicles for their own parasites, which he sees as priests of the Shrike. He's clearly going insane. It's great. Also, that's quite the metaphor for religion. Danielle, this book is anything is not subtle. <laughs> oh, the next book is even less subtle, if I remember correctly. I can't wait keep, to get to it. It just keeps devolving in subtleness. It's like... Did you not get it? Let me, let me explain it. Oh, did you not get it yet? Let me go into more. It's great. I love it. It's really good. <laughs> so he starts ripping off his clothes as he stumbles into a massive and hitherto unknown room. The floor appears transparent and below a shaft that drops what seems like a kilometer below to a pit of fire. A trap door on the floor slides open. He smells sulfur and begins to laugh at the cliche from the whole, like, pits of fire in hell. <laughs> on his knees, sobbing, he claws the parasites until bloody. Suddenly, hears Braun call his name. She's looking not at him, but beyond him, to something behind him, as she raises her pistol and fires. He turns and sees the Shrike. Oh, no! Ah, uh, not the Shrike! It's the Shrike! 
Ron fires at the Shrike, but Hoytal like, no, it grants a wish. I need to ask you about this. And suddenly <laughs> the Shrike sh- grants wishes. Did I know that? The whole point of the pilgrimage is that one of them gets their wish granted and the rest die. Oh, that's right. That's still stupid. <laughs> 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 but they're all willing to go in and do their their wishes. It had to be a prime number. And all of them are, remember, all their backstories were explaining why they were willing to yeah, do this. Yeah, but we washed away people. the prime number so quickly that I forgot the rest of it. I mean, kind of. They're so, they had the whole argument who, like, it still prime yeah. count bronze baby or the Keats <laughs> persona of that had scene. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah. All, it was all weird. <laughs> it's like Simmons thought about it later and was like, oh, man. <laughs> I think it's fun that he has, like, these ideas that the characters are like, like oh, the prime number thing. And then they're also like, yeah, we don't really know if it's true or not. We're just like, it's, it's legend and we're just going to go with it. Like, what else it's can the you people do? in the world not being sure about what's happening. <laughs> that would be true in real life, though. Yeah, exactly. It's like an unreliable narrator in the, in the story. <laughs> anyway, I think it's I, I, it's kind of fun. It makes it more, it makes it feel more real with the characters not knowing if the prime number thing actually makes a difference. Wouldn't that be funny? They do all of that. And then it did, yeah. did make a difference. They really did need the prime number. <laughs> like they show up, the truck's like, oh, sorry guys, you need the prime number. You all die now. Womp womp. <laughs> oh, the Shrike voice. I missed it. <laughs> I so many Shrike voice. I have the Scooby Doo Shrike voice. I have the, Yeah, but this is the, the one you used through the entire first book. Yeah. So. I know, right? It's, oh, it's my favorite it's so Shrike familiar voice. and fun. <laughs> Glad we're now back to that it. for Spook Retorts. <laughs> I have the Spooky Shrike. Be afraid. <laughs> Maybe Spooky Strike should have a different voice than our regular book retorts episodes. Oh, I'm Spooky Strike. Be afraid. Spooky Strike. Spooky Strike. <laughs> I'm here to impale you. <laughs> I'm going to put you on my tree. I'm Spooky Strike. <laughs> One pilgrim on my tree. Two pilgrims on my tree. Oh, oh, oh there's to be a prime number of pilgrims on my tree. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh, the Sesame Street episode with the Shrike on it was wild. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> well, Elmo sure was he wasn't after he got from that tree. So sad. Poor Elmo. <laughs> and then Big Bird got hugged to death. It was it was uh, the whole thing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry, everybody. That was yeah, we are. I mean, spooky tours. Spooky. awful. <laughs> You didn't know Spook Retorts was going to go that dark. Look, it's Spook Retorts. We got to go dark with DJ Shrike doing a set on the Sesame Street. <laughs> no, I don't want to see Danielle now that we talk about it. This is a tangent, but I'm doing it. I want to see the Mr. Rogers meets the Shrike and like, well, Mr. Shrike, you are perfect the way you are and the hugs you give are just lovely. We know that Mr. Rogers wins and he does not die at the end of this episode. <laughs> No, Mr. Rogers would would take the Shrike and like convert him to being a kind. Like he'd put the Shrike would then put like corks on the ends of all of his little blades so he could hug people better. Uh, yeah, that'd be amazing to see Mr. Shrike, Mr. Shrike, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Rogers neighborhood. <laughs> Mr. Shrike's neighborhood taking over. Oh, oh God! I don't know where we're going, Danielle. This has gone way off the rails. You're the one who brought it up. I didn't do it. I regret everything. I may cut all that. We'll see. <laughs> So anyway, the Hoyt is like, no, don't kill it. I need to grant my wish. And then silently, the Shrike is right in front of him. And Hoyt sees something in its eyes, something ineffable. And then it vanishes. Poof. What? <laughs> Poof. You said, huh? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Thank you for the fully work. I was just yeah, giving, yeah, I was just giving more fully work. <laughs> We're trying to make this a very lived-in experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the one episode of Frasier. Perfect. I yeah, great. I knew you were. <laughs> Probably the best episode of Frasier. It's a really good episode of Frasier. 
Uh, so Hoyt reaches up and touches his throat as blood starts to pour out of a gash that has appeared there. Uh-oh. Just magically? Just suddenly? Well, I mean, obviously the Shrike did it before vanishing. <laughs> He's but like, like, poke, poof. <laughs> he, like, did it, like, so quickly or, like, outside of time that, it, like, you don't perceive it. That's mean. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what a jerk. I can move out to the time and you can't. What was it? Peace out, time suckers. It'd be fun just to go around stabbing people and disappearing. Mm, all right. Okay, then, <laughs> serial killer Danielle. Come out and on Hooker Torch for us. I the Shrike. Oh, yeah, sure you did. So, Ron stares at Hoyt in horror as he realizes the pain is gone. He tries to reassure her, but as he opens his mouth, only more blood comes out, and then he passes out. But he doesn't die yet. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Do you find out? <laughs> Not in this episode, Danielle. Oh, no, Hoyt. Cut to Severin, waking up in Diana's bed. He gets up and goes to the bathroom to find some hangover pills, because he had quite the night. When he returns, Diana is sitting up in her bed, and there are two men in the doorway. The two men quickly subdue Severin at Diana's command. Uh-oh. Yeah. They tie him up and drug him with Truth Talk, which is the best name for a drug. <laughs> what does this drug do? Truth Talk. What do we call it? Truth Talk. Perfect. <laughs> Done. I'm going home. Hard day's work. What's this? Morphine, but better. Ultra morphine, done. Going home. <laughs> I love future names. They're the best. <laughs> While Severin could escape this interrogation by retreating into the data sphere, it would basically leave his body totally undefended from whatever they want to do to him. So he decides to stay and take it, which I don't know if that makes sense. Take the, the take the truth serum. Truth take talk. The, well, to, to like keep his consciousness in his body subject to the interrogation. Okay. I, I don't understand it either. I don't know why he does that. I would have left. <laughs> that way we can be a uh, party to it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the reason. So they ask him who he is, and he answers, I'm John Keats. And they ask him who he works for, and he's all, ah, no one. Which confuses them, since why is Gladstone employing a nobody? Working for himself. It's right. Working. He doesn't work for the man. He works for one person. John Keats. Persona. Number two. <laughs> works for that man. <laughs> <laughs> So they learn that Gladstone wants him around because he dreams of the Strike Pilgrims and Hyperion through the first Keats Retrieval persona. Diana concludes that he's a cybrid, which is bad news for them, since that means he's shifted to the stratosphere and could call for help. But he doesn't call for help for reasons. For stupid reasons? <laughs> no reason that's ever explained. He just doesn't. <laughs> that's dumb. He's kind of nihilistic, to be honest. Still. I agree. So Diana insists on asking a few more questions before they kill him and skip town. They learn he used to live on Old Earth, the real Old Earth, which is crazy to them. And one of the goons freaks out, so Diana blasts him. What? Just, like, one of the goons is like, this is all too crazy. We're going to get nabbed by the feds or whatever because this guy's like talking nonsense and is a cybrid and like wants to bolt and so Diana shoots him. Where did she hire these people from? Uh, They're all very amateurs. It's hilarious. <laughs> Also, Severin doesn't really know anything, like why Gladstone needs to know about the Pilgrims, why the Technocorp made him, but he thinks that Gladstone manufactured the War of the Ousters as a bargaining tool in her conflict with the Technocorp, since members of the core leadership, all three factions, you know, the Ultimates, the Stables, and the Volatiles, sure, remember sure. them? Yeah, totally. Just like the first book that we did. There were three. Yes. So. <laughs> that was such a random throwback. Yeah, well, they they come back, Danielle. They're a big part of this book. Right. So those three factions, all of their leaders are afraid 
of the Shrike and the Time Tombs because it's something they can't account for with all their calculations. Right. And while the Shrike and the Time Tombs have a lot to do with everything that's going on, no one knows how or why. Could be bad news. So we've learned very little from this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, that was super helpful. Thanks for sharing. It was mostly to remind you about the Volatiles, the Ultimates, and the Stables. And to introduce you to Truth Talk. Which is... The new talk show starring Danielle. Welcome to Truth Talk. Our guest today is DJ Shrike. (laughs) Tell us the truth, DJ Shrike. (laughs) (laughs) With special guest, Joseph Severn. But not really. He's a Keats persona in disguise. (laughs) Just kidding. Psych. All right, Danielle, for today's episode, what are we starting out with? Why don't you tell us what's going on in today's show? We're starting off with Sam telling us that. And continuing on the story of Hyperion. <laughs> That'd be the worst Truth Talk episode ever. Come on. We're going to get canceled. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you are not on board for any of my plans today, <laughs> are you? <laughs> the stupid talk show. <laughs> and then you won't share any of your plans with me, all your ideas. So now I'm just sitting here with no ideas. Thanks, Danielle. You'll come up with new ones. I have no doubt. <laughs> Terrible Give it ones. like five minutes, everybody. <laughs> So they asked Severin what the core advisory council has predicted for the war, and that he says the outcome of the war will be the end of the hegemony, the destruction of the world web, and the end of the human race. And the only unknown variable is that of Hyperion, which might alter the outcome. So basically, Mina knows that the core is going to wipe out humanity, destroy humans everywhere, and the only thing that might derail those plans is Hyperion. And so that's why she's manufactured this war, so she can get to Hyperion and maybe involve it in the hegemony in a way that might stop the core. So how does she know that that's the Technicore's plans? I mean, it's of an open secret. Okay. So she's hoping that the war is going to put the Hyperion on their side? Opening the time tombs, when, when she had the console go there and betray them, quote unquote, and open the time tombs, which precipitated this whole war. Mm-hmm. Like, she's hoping that, that doing that, releasing the strike or whatever, might be what they need to do to save humanity from the Technocore. So, and the Technocore, remind me who's in the Technocore? It is the collection of artificial intelligences that we made that seceded from humanity and formed their own society. I mean, aren't we kind of on their side because humanity sort of sucks, especially in this book? I'm not saying she is in the right for trying to save humanity by doing all this. I'm just saying that's what her plan is. It feels like they kind of made their own bed. Oh, very much so. They were not They made the AIs. (laughs) Yeah, and then then they were terrible to it. (laughs) Yeah, again, None of this is surprising to anyone. No, Again, this is like real life. <laughs> yeah. She's like, how do you know the Technocore wants to wipe out humanity? I'm like, Danielle, it's a Technocore. Of course it wants to wipe out humanity. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I was just making sure I understood the whole plot, Sam. <laughs> I, I know. I'm just saying. Like, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Are you supposed to be rooting for the humans in this book or is this just one of those like... Uh, I'm not sure you should be rooting for really anyone at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's very... Like I said earlier, it's very gray I think story. the only people you're supposed to kind of like are the pilgrims, like Saul and his daughter Rachel, like the most likable people in the entire book Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's only because she's a baby. <laughs> Poor little Saul baby. All right. Is she now like five weeks old? Wasn't she six or something? No, she's like six days old now. She's six days old? Yeah. She's going to like go out of existence. They have very yeah. little time to resolve this issue. Yeah, the clock is ticking. Does this whole book go over six days? I have no idea, Danielle. It might. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Poor little Rachel. <laughs> or baby it Saul. resolve in six days and then go on. Who knows? Is Rachel going to make it? Find out some week on book retorts. <laughs> I wish you could tell you which week it was, but I, I really can't. <laughs> Find out one of these days. <laughs> 
Maybe. So just as they're wrapping up, the interrogation are about to kill him. There are a bunch of explosions and laser blasts as Lei Hunt and a bunch of commandos kill the kidnappers and retrieve Severn. Yay! Right. I mean, he's already told him everything he knows, so who cares? Right. And Hunt merely says to Severn, you're late for your meeting with the CEO. Womp womp. So they killed Diana or whatever, too? Well, kind of. They, like, knocked them out. Captured them. They knocked them out. So what's the po- what was even the point of that whole scene? We will get to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it comes up later. I don't want to spoil it. You're not going to like the answer. <laughs> yes, I'm probably not going to like the answer. So we cut to Severn, back in the CEO's war room with a bunch of other people observing the space battles above Hyperion on massive hollow screens. General Morpurgo, the guy in charge, is telling Gladstone... It's not good. While they're holding their ground, the Alistairs have pushed in further than they expected. Uh, shocking. I, can't, I know. I just can't believe it. I know. What are the chances? <laughs> the Alistairs have way more fighting ships than they expected, and they have all these small, heavily armed ships that can dash inside their lines and wreak havoc. It's like they've lived in space this whole time or something. Right, and are completely unprepared for what the Alistairs were to bring to the table because uh, they didn't know just, anything about them. I can't believe it. I'm just in shock. So much shock. So Glasson wants to know how they underestimated the combat number of combat ships, since they said there are only you know, six or seven hundred, and, and there are thousands. And she's told that their intelligence was wrong, because, you know, what do they know about the officers? They know nothing, so they just guessed, basically. <laughs> they like, looked up at the sky, and they were like, hmm, looks like six hundred. Pretty much. <laughs> and then the AI Advisory Council was not involved in the air assessment. And so when she asked Counselor Albedo about this, he's like, well, we weren't asked what, our, what to, to put any input in. And we didn't offer any intelligence since we, the AIs, claimed to have never had any contact with the ousters, which we know is a lie, but they claimed to not have any contact with the ousters, and so our information would not be any better than your information. So our estimates that they have up to 6,000 ships were just as reliable as your estimates that they had 600. And we didn't think to just, you know, say, well, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, nope. It was, we really didn't feel the only need to share that, which is like, yeah, clearly there's some, like, you know, shenanigans going on between the, the Technocore and the Gem. Uh, yeah, surprising. Gladstone then points out that the Alshers waited to attack until their reinforcements had arrived, indicating a trap possibly, but her admiral dismisses that idea. While the new strength estimates indicate Alshers could push them back to defensive positions, they're still confident they can hold the system and protect the Farcaster and the planet. So, you know, nothing to worry about. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, I know. They're still overconfident. It's great. They have no idea what they're doing. I hope Mina realizes this. With that, Mina's like, all right, this meeting's over. We're done. Where's John Keats? I need him. Well, Severn's there, and they go out <laughs> to the center of Government House, which is constructed in the shape of a Star of David. And within the center of the star, there was a garden. And so they walk and talk in the garden, and Severn asks why they let Diana and the others interrogate him if they knew he was being held. And Gladstone says they want to learn more about them, like what they knew, who they were working for, and what they like what they were after. Mm-hmm. And they learn that they may have been working for a commodities broker named Enlim Harbit. Yeah. The names in this, man. <laughs> Emlyn Harbrit. <laughs> I know, the names are amazing. Who has ties to the Glennon Heights rebels and also to the Shrike Church. And, not for nothing, all of the Shrike bishops are still in hiding, fearing backlash from people hearing about all the horrors unleashed by the slaughter <laughs> on Hyperion by the Shrike. It's like somehow uh, putting a murdering deity up for... The Lord of Pain, please. <laughs> Like, somehow that seems surprising when he creates pain. You mean you guys don't like the Lord of Pain? Why don't you like the Lord of Pain? <laughs> don't you like pain? Come on, man. <laughs> I know. Hilarious. 
Glassstone then tells Severn that Diana and the others will be thoroughly interrogated, which means, quote, and you're going to love this, that even now their brains were floating in full shunt tanks. Their bodies would be kept in cryogenic storage until a secret trial determined if their actions had been treasonable. After the trial, the bodies would be destroyed, and Diana and the others would remain in detention with all sensory and comm channels turned off. The hegemony had not used the death penalty in centuries. That's intense. I know, right? Just why? Wild. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the worst punishment imaginable. Dead. It's worse, yeah. <laughs> For not that much of a deal. Like <laughs> I love how they're like, we don't use the death penalty. We only keep them in a living hell for the rest of their existence. It's way which better, is Sam. Yeah, it's yeah, way totally better. better. Way more humane. <laughs> Crazy. Anyway, Gladstone and Severn go on about what kind of poem Severn, as Keat, would write about the current history. And Severn is all like, it's already been written, or attempted to be written. It's called Hyperion. It's about the death of gods and the difficulty in accepting their displacement. So, you know, the whole premise of the book has already been written in the poem. <laughs> Go read that, Mina. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, jeez, Mina. Why don't you read my books? <laughs> so then Mina asks if he thinks the Technocore will succeed in creating the ultimate intelligence. Severn quips that... They learn from the human experience that to construct the next step in awareness is an invitation to slavery, if not actual extinction. So what they're making, the ultimate intelligence, the god, is not the creator. They're trying to make a creature, whatever that means. <laughs> Who's making a creature? So the Technocore is making – the ultimate intelligence is like the Frankenstein, the creature that the Technocore is creating. It's not going to try to be like a god above them. They're not trying to make something better than them. They're trying to make something that is from them. I don't know. It's all very unclear. Because they're – they're trying to make, like, the perfect being? They're trying to make an ultimate intelligence, mm -hmm. but they want to make one that doesn't view the Technocore as, like, inferior and wipes them out the way the Technocore is wiping out humanity, which created it. <laughs> right. You're like, okay, we need to tread carefully because we know what happens when you create something smarter than yourself. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what he's saying. Like, and his only explanation for why they're, like, totally okay with this is because, like, what they're making is the creature, not the creator. And I, I, I'm probably missing some subtle thing here, but I don't know. <laughs> We can't let it do to us what we're doing to the humans. <laughs> yeah, ex that's exactly what's going on. It's great. It's so good. <laughs> oh, I love it. And so Mina's all like trying to pump Severn for like information. Like, why are you asking me? I'm not part of the quack. I have access to the data stream, but they keep me out of like the secret places. And Mina's like, well, you are also fully human. And then she draws this parallel between Severn being both fully human genetically, like his body is a human body, mm -hmm. and also fully of the core because he is part of the Technocore and connects to the data sphere. And she compares that with the concept of Jesus Christ, the Godhead, being fully human and fully divine. So that's subtle. Three in one. So I told you this book gets less and less subtle about religious connections as it goes on. Where's the Holy Ghost? We need a Holy Ghost. Is the Strike the that's Holy Ghost? The, that's, uh, no, the, the Holy Ghost is obviously the disembodied Keats <laughs> inside the Bronlamia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're good. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> the Shrike is like the devil or Lucifer or something. I don't know. Or maybe not. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's Old like you know, Metatron God. or whatever or something. It's you Old know, Testament the, the God, Sam. Okay, sure. Old Testament God. <laughs> well, Old Testament God was much scarier than New Testament God. <laughs> That's true. And it did demand a sacrifice, much like Abraham and Isaac. So, you know, there you go. You got me, Daniel. <laughs> So the last thing she asks before they part is, if the woman who carries her counterpart is crucified on the Shrike's legendary tree of thorns, will you suffer for all eternity in your dreams? And on that not at all bleak note, Danielle, that's where we'll wrap up for today. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> definitely a horror story. <laughs> I told you it's spooky <laughs> 
Can't believe it. How does it feel to be back in the Hyperion saddle, Danielle? Still feel as good as ever? Yep. Making me sore. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to put some butt cream on then because it's going to be a long ride. Butt cream. Well, that's what, doesn't you know all cowboys use butt cream? Uh, yeah, definitely. Every time I've ever climbed onto a horse, I've used some butt cream. <laughs> Good, because that's what butt cream's for. <laughs> My gosh, okay. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, butt cream, Danielle? <laughs> <laughs> Spook retorts, everybody. Welcome. Spooky butt cream. <laughs> Join us next week where I talk nothing about Hyperion. <laughs> it's the spookiest part of all. Not knowing the answers to the questions in the story. The terror of existence and our insignificance in the universe. Ooh, I nihilism. Mean- <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> A little dark for our spook retorts, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> it is the third one, so we have to keep getting darker and darker. Remember, Danielle, the scariest monsters of all are people. That's not untrue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any idea what's happening in the next part of Hyperion, Danielle? Uh, no, no, nothing. No idea. Yeah, me either. Not it's a great. single I thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love how little I know where this book is going, even though I've read it twice. <laughs> I have literally no idea. So good. I love it. Well, I guess if you out there want to book D-Day Shrike for your bar mitzvah or wedding... <laughs> Exclusively those two things. <laughs> yes, the only thing that D.D. Shrek does. <laughs> Bar Mitchell's and Weddings. If you want to book him and the and the kittens, don't forget D.D. Shrek and the kittens. Oh, that's true. Deal. Sometimes uh, D.D. Shrek will do charity events if it involves, like, for the ASPCA or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair. You're right, of course. The, the World Wildlife Fund and everything. Yeah. With kittens. So you can uh, contact us to get in touch with D.D. Shrek. We're his exclusive agent, <laughs> and we get 10%. <laughs> That's just tell me how much we get for it, Sam. Look, they got to know that they're getting what they pay for, which is not a lot. <laughs> we have so many businesses. All of them are suffering. We are making no money. We're bleeding money, Danielle. We have so many businesses, and none of them are successful. We're making no profit. Because so we many were expenses. Hiring junior detectives last time, or like, and then we're going to try this government program to get them into spies. <laughs> I can't believe that's not working out. <laughs> and somehow our dog's only security guard company <laughs> is not turning a profit. <laughs> At least DJ Shrike is out there doing his best to drum up business. <laughs> I think we have got a winner with that one. Well, the problem is we don't get a lot of repeat business because they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> that is a dilemma. <laughs> Are we slowly just becoming like dumb Shark Tank, the podcast? <laughs> I'd be okay with that, though. <laughs> Today on Dragon's Den Book Retorts. <laughs> Gosh, all right. All right, well, if you want to put this right, contact us at bookretorts.com, whatever. Uh, you can also donate to our Patreon. That's where we uh, get in contact with DJ Shrike. You're not going to mention our Twitter, are you? I was, go- I was just adding our Patreon into there, Sam. Well, what is our Patreon's address? Uh, Patreon.com slash bookretorts. Hey, woohoo! Hey. I, did, I did the Danielle thing. You did. And you can also, uh, as <laughs> Sam said, tweet, Instagram, Facebook us at Book Retorts. Yeah, that's us at Book Retorts. Not the other people at Book Retorts. They're not the real people. They're fake. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on this very spooky Spook Retorts. And join us next week for more Spook Retorts, non Hyperion related. So something. Halloweeny and amazing, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, until then, don't be murdered by the things under your bed and the ghosts in the closet or whatever. Or D-Day Shrike. Or D-Day Shrike. Well, that's much more dangerous than any of those things. (laughs) 
Watch out for humanity. Ooh, it's rough. Oh, the worst. That's way more dangerous than all of those. <laughs> well, until then, bye. We'll take care, everybody. General Morpugo, Morpugo, <laughs> I forgot if I forget an R. I think it's Morpugo, but it could be Morpugo. That's Morpugo. I'm pretty sure. Let's find out. Let's Ooh. find out today on Book Retorts. Go to chapter seven. Chapter seven. Narrated by Sam. It is Sam. Morpugo. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> no, I'm fired? Yes. As the announcer. <laughs>